For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are at Build-A-Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests that we've brought on the podcast are also Build-A-Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build-A-Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build-A-Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops, you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Build-A-Trend account. We are just a few months away from the Contractors Coalition Summit here in Scottsdale, Arizona. It'll begin on Sunday, May 7th and complete on Wednesday, May 10th. We had two events that were completely sold out last year, the first one in Nashville, second one in Huntington Beach with Nick Schiffer from NS Builders and Morgan Molitor from Construction of Style. Again, make sure that you get out to Scottsdale. It's going to be an amazing event. We only have a few seats left, and we're going to be speaking about all things pricing, project management, how to make money inside and outside of your business, you know, contracts, client expectations, building that organization. And again, just the marketing aspect, social media. One of the most amazing values of this conference is not only the content that's produced and a lot of the information that's handed out to those that attend, but also the networking, being there with 30 like-minded builders around the country, being able to have a, someone to contact and reach out to on any questions you have moving forward. It is an amazing event. Hurry and sign up. Again, www.contractorscoalitionsummit.com. We'll see you in May. Instead of finding an apartment to rent, I actually found an apartment to buy. A little over two years later, I ended up selling that apartment and seeing my initial investment in, the, in that apartment more than quadruple in value. That one transaction I made, I was making a decent salary at that point, pretty good salary. And the single real estate transaction was more than a full year's worth of salary. So I, I wanted to know how, how can I make that happen again? So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. And today we have Matt Pacini with us. Welcome, Matt. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. So Matt is a full-time real estate investor. He's also a coach and he's author of Backstage Guide to Real Estate. And there's a lot of topics I want to speak with you because your career path has been pretty interesting, Matt. I know that real estate wasn't the first plan, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, and it's interesting how some of us kind of figure out our path and then such as yourself, you go and build in and become super successful. So um, let me start with this. When most people think of passive income, you know, they don't have anywhere to start. So how did you make your start in, in real estate investment? Yeah, Brad, it's a, it's a good question. If you think back to 2001 and where you were in 2001, I was living in New York City and I had my own uh, advertising agency, actually a little small boutique digital marketing shop that I had started. And um, 
the bubble burst. You know, the dot-com bubble was gone, and my business was completely imploding. I mean, just failing, (laughs) you know, headfirst. And at that exact time, I got a phone call from my landlord telling me I had 90 days to get out of the apartment I was living in. Now, I still wanted to stay in New York, but how am I going to find a place to live with with no job, uh, you know, in a business that has completely failed here? I ended up getting a job working uh, in-house at the cable television channel Showtime. They were a client of mine. And instead of finding an apartment to rent, I actually found an apartment to buy. Now, this was not in the part of town I wanted to live in. It was much further uptown, still a great area, but you know, not not desirable for 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 a young single guy necessarily. But um, I bought the place, and a little over two years later, I ended up selling that apartment and seeing my initial investment in the in that apartment more than quadruple in value. That allowed me to, to to buy another place in the part of town that I liked. But that one transaction I made, I was making a decent salary at that point, pretty good salary. And the single real estate transaction was more than a full year's worth of salary. So I, I wanted to know how, how can I make that happen again? Because it's such an incredible uh, return on investment. And that's when I started getting involved in real estate. And that was the first thing that sort of sparked my interest in it um, from more than just I need a place to live, right? Which was the initial reason why I moved in there. I, I needed a, a, a roof over my head. But once I saw the incredible increase in value that I was able to do, and, and part of that was things that I did to the apartment and, and the building itself. And part of it was just the appreciation. Part of it was the location was, um, you know, rapidly going up in, in desirability. Um, but all those factors together just made for an unbelievable deal. And I said, how can I make lightning strike more than once? Well, let me, let me ask you this, because this is interesting. I mean, uh, maybe speak to the, how you did that first purchase, why you were looking for somewhere to rent because you had 90 days, right? Uh, fortunately, you had some contacts, you had a network there to have a career path, at least to find a, another position, you know, career-wise. But why was this property only available for purchase, not rent? And then did you have anyone help put some capital together? Did you have some savings? Were you preparing? You know, how did you even leverage that opportunity? I had a little bit of savings. The the purchase price was relatively small. You know, I, I know people are thinking New York City, you know, oh, it's going to be very expensive. But this was way uptown in the Washington Heights area. Um, and, you know, we're going back to, to 2001. So, you know, the, the purchase price of the property was $125,000. So, uh, I put down a, a 20% down payment. I put, I put down $30,000 on the property. Um, and so that allowed me to um, be able to, um, you know, I, I, I had that money saved up. Uh, why was it available for sale and not for rent was because uh, the the owner didn't want to, uh, didn't, I, I don't know that he ever even really wanted to rent it, but he wouldn't have been allowed to rent it wouldn't necessarily be allowed to rent it. It was in a co-op building. So a lot of the buildings in New York are 
um, co-ops, uh, a lot of the newer construction and newer properties in New York over the past 10 to 20 years have moved more into the, the realm of condos, but uh, co-ops are sort of their own unique uh, beasts, if you will, and they're controlled by a co-op board that sets rules and bylaws, and in a lot of cases, they do not allow for rentals. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they're only for certain periods of time. They can also change the rules from time to time. So um, in, in general, co-ops, uh, this is a broad generality, are, are not going to have rentals. Uh, this person had owned the property for quite some time, was looking to move elsewhere, and was looking to sell the property. The way I found it, which is kind of an interesting story, Brad, is that my, my sister was living up in Washington Heights. She was renting a place up there, and she saw an ad on a bulletin board, a local bulletin board, like a physical bulletin board <laughs> um, by the grocery store. And, you know, one of the ones, I don't even know if they do them anymore, but I remember back then you, you, you could you could put a flyer up and you'd have these little tabs at the bottom that you could rip off that would have a phone number for you to call. Uh, you know, cause nobody had email after, well, people were starting to do email back then, but still it was phone. It was a phone number that I called. I called and spoke with the guy and talked about it and went up and took a look at the property. And, um, you know, serendipitously when I went to go meet with him and look at the property, as I was walking into this building, there was a guy that I knew a friend of a friend's, but like I knew the guy and, and I was surprised to see him at the building and it turned out he had moved there about six months to a year prior and he was on the co-op board. So um, I had met him and then I talked with him later about the building and everything seemed to check out and uh, I, I made the purchase. It's incredible because you think uh, Manhattan, you know, in New York is not really a small area to see a common <laughs> face. You know, what are the chances as you mentioned serendipitously, but you know, walk through the co-op thing because minor, you know, for those that may not be familiar with real estate in New York, it's very different, right? Than most places, you know, a co-op, at least my understanding is that you have a building, maybe, um, definitely not new because new buildings are kind of con, you know, set as condos, as you mentioned, but it's where you can buy certain portions of the building. And so you don't really, you own a portion of the building, maybe you're on different levels and then you have similar to maybe like an HOA where you have community expenses, you know, if there's an elevator possibly, although a lot of them don't. Um, so walk through just the, the complexity of, of working with a co-op and a co-op, co-op, um, partnership. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to know a lot about it, not only cause I lived in that one, but I lived in another one after, and then actually was asked to be on the board and it was actually the board president for a number of years. So I, I know probably more than anybody wants to know about the co-ops, but essentially when you purchase a co-op, you're purchasing shares in a corporation that owns the building. You are not buying a particular unit. You are just buying shares in a corporation. Now, in part of that sale is you are also given a propri proprietary lease for a specific unit. Um, and so then there's that unit, which you don't necessarily own, but you have a proprietary lease for it. And then there's the common areas. And uh, as part of that co-op, you will pay a there's a purchase price to, to buy those shares. Um, those shares can be, um, a f uh, you can have a mortgage on them, uh, depending on how the bank wants to handle it. But a lot of banks, uh, a lot of your major banks, you know, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase um, will do loans 
uh, and, and smaller banks too on on co-ops they there's usually certain stipulations on that so when a if a building is converting to a co-op, um, it might have to be done through a specific bank. But beyond that, usually the mortgages can be done with any bank and you would have to pay your mortgage payments. But even if you bought the property uh, with with cash, you, you do have a, a monthly maintenance fee that you pay to the, the co-op, which covers things such as general cleaning you know um a manager for the building um upkeep you know wear and tear and also insurance um for the building itself although you'd still want to get your own insurance for your unit and also um property taxes which is a big big expense but also like in new york utilities like heating we had a we had a we had a big boiler and we had to pay for that and that that was all part of that and the the shares that you purchase in the the building are usually um divvied up um in a in a way that makes it equitable for everybody in other words if i bought a one-bedroom apartment but you had a two-bedroom apartment you would be buying more shares right um if uh your unit also the higher floor uh, usually has more shares, um, but the purchase price and the the sales price gets determined by the person who has the proprietary lease. But then it has to get approved by the board. So the board could, uh, if if the sale, if I was going to sell it to you, Brad, for ten dollars, and and the board was afraid that that would just devalue the property in in, in the whole property and make the values go down, they could deny the sale. Uh, for certain reasons, uh, and that's a legal thing that's a little bit beyond my control. We would always defer to our legal team if there was ever any questions or concerns about things of that nature. It seems super complex. The reason I ask that is because, you, I mean, you alluded to this essentially with the co-op that you're buying shares, right, of the co-op. And yeah, it's precedented based on maybe square footage, right, or size or level or floor. You know, there's definitely some qualifications how how do they even manage this though when you're dealing with what we've seen through the pandemic where pricing escalation inflation you know we saw real estate prices soar all throughout the country so now someone may have a penthouse unit let's call it you know two bedroom up top but just price of real estate has increased so they may be on level two selling it to a new buyer and you know just current market you know it's a higher value you know how how does the board work through that complexity you know, we 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 never had an issue with it because the prices were always going up and up. I think the question would be if the prices if the price was going down. But you know, in in terms of the mar you know, the market's going to bear what the market's going to bear, and and a lot of the properties in New York are co-ops. So you know, you 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 would look at it the same way that you would look at it as if you were looking to buy a property yourself, right? You're looking at comps, see what things are going for at what square footage. So okay, we're in this neighborhood. It's this kind of building with these sort of amenities. Uh, it's this many square feet. It's on this floor. Comps are telling us that this should go for, I'm going to make up a number, a million dollars. Totally made up number. But if that's what we see the comps at, then that's fine. But if if there was a, 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 a deal where, well, I don't think anyone would sell it for much less than, than what they could get on the market. But if there was something going on, we would have to, the, the co-op, board, I guess, would consult their attorneys about how to handle something that they were concerned about. That's very interesting. So going back to this first investment you made there in Washington Heights, 
Yeah. How did how did you capitalize to say, okay, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I see the opportunity in real estate. I think this is something I want to pursue. How did you now roll into, you know, the next deal and the next deal? Because you mentioned you were living through dot com, which some of us may remember that uh, lived through that. And then not long after, not long after you had the recession, you know, the housing crisis of two thousand, you know, eight and nine. So, you know, walk through just some of those transactions early on for you. Yeah. So after I had per- sold the 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 first apartment, I bought another apartment on the Upper West Side. And uh, I actually lived there for about 10 years. So I made it through the, the 2008 downturn. I, I saw my property go up in value uh, for, for quite a few years beforehand. But when 2008 came along, it, the value went back down to where, where I had purchased it at, which was I felt very fortunate at the time because I know a lot of people were underwater. Um, but I was I was okay, um, and then I had to wait several years for the for the market to go back up before I was ready to exit that. But during that time, um, so after about a year of living in the apartment on the Upper West Side, um, I got the brilliant idea that I was going to build a lake house from scratch. So uh, uh, it takes up an entire chapter in, in my book that you mentioned earlier. But um, I, I just thought. Uh, I had been up at this development in Northwest Connecticut because a friend of mine's father was a real estate agent and he needed a website and that, you know, that's what I did. I was a digital marketing website guy. So I, he was like, well, you build a website for me. And I said, sure. And we were up visiting him actually in beautiful, beautiful area called Litchfield, Connecticut. And uh, he said, well, we have this development around the corner from here where we do a lot of business. I'd love for you to see the area so you can get a feel for it and, and so that you kind of know what to put on the website. Like maybe you'll take photos or something. I don't know. And I said, sure. So I went and took a look at this proper, this development and, and, and um, this guy, uh, my, my, one of my best friend's father uh, and his business partner started driving me around uh, this, this area. And where he li- he lived like on a farmhouse kind of situation, like sort of like a secluded place in Litchfield, like nowhere where I would necessarily thought that I would live uh, being a younger single guy. Um, but he took me to this development where they had like eight tennis courts and Olympic sized pool and this big lake and you get access to the lake and these beautiful homes and people driving, you know, nice cars. And I, I was, I was blown away. It was very, very different than, than, than where he had been living, you know, about 15, 20 minutes away. And they were showing me houses that were underdeveloped, like this house they had just gotten done building and it was for sale or this one, someone had bought the lot and was building this house and all different sort of stages. And they actually had a couple of lots that were just vacant lots for sale. And I just asked like, well, how much does a, does a lot cost? And he told me the price and my jaw hit the floor because it was so cheap compared to buying something in New York. And uh, I ended up buying a piece of, of, you know, essentially raw land, about an acre of tree-filled land with some slight um, drainage issues in the front of the lot. It actually was um, wetlands in the front of the lot. It was fine. You, you're not allowed to build there, but I had a whole acre, and it was just the very, very front part. Um, and so for a few years there, we would go up and visit my friend's parents. Uh, they had a very large 
home that they were trying to the whole other story but they were trying to make a b&b out of it so we almost had like our own apartment if you will uh, that we could go to at any time and now that i owned the lot i had access to the lake so i bought this really cheap boat like really cheap like it used to stall all the time in the middle of the lake and i have to get towed back in but i bought bought the boat um and i I bought the boat because i wanted dock space and there's a waiting list for dock space but you couldn't get on the waiting list till you had the boat so my dad said buy the cheapest boat you can and just you know hold on to it because if you ever decide to build a house at the property which i did and you want that dock space you get and it that's what happened after about three years i finally came up on the list and i got dock space I blew all my money building the house. So I wasn't able to buy a nice boat yet. Um, and then I ended up actually ne- almost never staying at the house. Uh, my intention was this to be a like a vacation home, but right around the time it was getting constructed, uh, the, the construction was finishing up, I met this amazing woman who foolishly accepted my marriage proposal about a year and a half <laughs> later. Uh, but her her folks have a have a place in Connecticut. So I didn't necessarily need a place in Connecticut anymore, number one. But number two, people were beating down the door to rent the place. And so I started renting this apartment. It became a vacation rental. I mean, this was, it's not, I, I had to research when Airbnb started when I was writing my book, because I thought it was before Airbnb started. It wasn't. Airbnb had technically started, but they were very big on the West Coast. They weren't. They didn't have a big national presence. Uh, Home Away and, and Verbo um, were, were kind of getting some traction at that time. So I, I, would, I would list it with, with, with Home Away and Verbo. But um, yeah, it, be, it became a rental property and i started to learn all these things about rental properties and dealing with tenants and dealing with leases and um you know property management type things um and then the fun stuff and when the fun stuff i mean taxes and accounting and depreciation and all that kind of stuff so you know that house is really what led me to be where i am today and and just so that everybody knows you know i've 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 now been doing this full time for for many many years, and uh, you know I have an, a portfolio of over ten thousand apartment units that I've invested in across the country. Two thirds of that portfolio are deals that I'm a, I'm a limited partner on, so I just you know invest in other people's deals, people that I've gotten to know and trust. And um, but about one third of that portfolio, almost four thousand units are units that I've become a, a general partner on. So those are deals I'm actively involved in. Um, and I syndicate those deals out just like those, those deals I invest in are syndications. And for anyone who doesn't know, a syndication is simply when you have a bunch of investors who have a, you know, want to invest in something that may be otherwise unattainable for them. We can pool our money together and buy that. So I don't necessarily have $20 million of capital sitting in my pocket that I can deploy to, to buy an apartment complex. But maybe I know a bunch of people who can put in 50K, 100K, we get several hundred of them together, pull that money together, and then can go ahead and and make that purchase. So it's interesting. I mean, just hearing this story, and, and of course, this really opened your eyes, not just your first investment, you know, being there in Uptown, but then now you build your own project, you're on the lake, you're understanding, you know, the value of, you know, having tenants and, you know, dealing with the property management aspect. When you mentioned taxes, what are 
maybe some special tax advantages. But, you know, just owning real estate, you know, when you talk about depreciation, what does that mean for somebody listening that may not understand the value of depreciation and how that plays a role, you know, on your year to year tax, you know, um, that you can owe, right? As you're doing your taxes each year. Sure. I'll go over that at a super high level. First, I'll say two things about it, though. Number one, you got to talk with your own tax professional about that because these things are very nuanced based on your specific terms. And the other thing is I have a couple of free articles on my website, which I'm sure we'll talk about at the end, where you can read really neat, detailed information about depreciation and depreciation recapture, which a lot of people don't talk about. But you have to recapture depreciation later. Later. You should you should know about that. Um, but what basically how this works is that um, the IRS says when you buy a piece of property, the property goes down in value over time from wear and tear. So not the land. The land itself cannot be depreciated, but the structure that you you've built on there or that you that's on there when you buy it um, goes down over time. On for a residential property, it's twenty seven and a half years. If it's a commercial property, it's thirty nine years. So, um, let's take an example of a property that you buy for uh, I don't know, say thirty five million dollars. Maybe seven and a half percent of that is is uh, considered the land value. So you've got twenty seven and a half million dollars left. Well, you can depreciate that twenty seven and a half million dollars over twenty seven and a half years. So one million dollars each year um, of value is theoretically lost on that property. So when you file your taxes at the end of the year, you can file this one thousand dollar, uh, sorry, one million dollar loss. Now, there's all kinds of different rules around the losses and all of that stuff. So that's why I say you got to talk with your CPA about it. But let's say that property you rented it out and you generated a million dollars in profit, in gains on the property after your expenses were paid and everything. You had a million dollar gain. Well. You also have this million-dollar loss from depreciation. So essentially, in a lot of cases, but not all, and you got to talk right. with your CPA, you wouldn't pay taxes on that million dollars that you got that year. That, that million dollars of income would be offset by the million-dollar loss. Now, um, there's recapture that has to be – and that's a whole other – conversation read, read the articles on the on the website but depreciation can be a wonderful tax benefit when i bought that property in connecticut and i was going to use it for my personal residence uh as, as a second home i wouldn't be able to use any depreciation because it was going to be a place that i was living in but I actually never lived there at all. Um, I had I spent at maximum like a couple of weekends here or there. Um, by law, I, I believe at least at the time it was fourteen days. I couldn't spend more than fourteen days there um, in in a calendar year. But I mean, I would just go up for like a weekend and fix up the place because tenant had broken something or needed some light bulbs changed and then went back down. So even when I was there, it's not like I was really enjoying it all that much. Maybe I'd go out for a spin on the boat, but I was literally doing maintenance at the property. Um, and uh, 
because of that, I was actually able to use depreciation on the property. And, you know, any expenses that I had on the property, I was able to write those off of the taxes. Now I had income coming in as well. So those losses that from expenses and depreciation help offset the income. Um, you know, truth be told, I wasn't making after all was said and done with the with the uh, expenses and everything. I, it's not like I was making a tremendous amount of money. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing when I when I bought this deal. And and quite honestly, like if I looked at the deal today and underwrote it, there's no way I would do it. It was not <laughs> a good investment from a pure dollars and cents perspective. But the amount of stuff that I learned from that experience was invaluable. You know, I mean, like totally worth it and and i did okay and we ended up selling it and i did okay and i didn't you know it, it helped with my tax burden through the time that we owned it um and the cool thing is even if i was just breaking even there was a certain amount of principal that was being paid down every year on the property so you know six seven eight thousand dollars every year of loan that was paid by people from the from the income from the rental and so then when i had to pay off the loan at the end it was it was reduced. So I mean, it was overall it was a good thing. Yeah, that's super valuable, and I love that you gave the high level approach because there's no doubt that everyone has to you know consult with their own CPA. But but essentially, you know, as you're speaking about this high level math, the reality is whether it be commercial, or residential, there is a lot of benefit to have, you know as you start building your portfolio and you know and there are you know um, you know tax incentives if you will that kind of help you personally. What's interesting is, I mean, you quickly go from, and I, I, I don't know, this wasn't quickly, this wasn't an overnight thing. I mean, this is years in the making, but now the portfolio you've built. Now, when you mentioned you have 10,000 apartments, you know, have you invested in commercial real estate as well or residential? I mean, how does that split look between commercial and residential? I met with a gentleman who was a next door neighbor of my in-laws. And what his job is, he's a, a financial advisor, uh, but I mean, it's like a very high powered type of financial advisor working for large family offices, you know, millions and billions of dollars. And I asked him earlier on in the real estate career about that. I, I was actually looking at investing and a friend of mine had started like a fund of funds and I was talking about that. And, and he said to me, look, Matt, you get, uh, he didn't say this, this is another term that I've heard, but you get riches in the niches, right? And he said, what he was saying was, look, Matt, you're specialized in multifamily. Like, that's what you're doing. And when I've seen people build wealth and do very well, it's because they focus in one particular area. Um, and so that, that would be my advice. Like, I don't know why you're looking at this fund of funds. Like, why don't you just invest that money in a real estate deal? And because um, the fund of funds was, a, it, it wasn't, it, you can have a fund of funds that's in real estate, but this wasn't. So, you know, for, for me, I have focused mainly on multifamily. Now, I've also invested in Broadway musicals because I have a background in theater. I was a professional actor for several years and my wife is in the, is in the business of Broadway. I mean, that's what she does. Nine of, that's her, you know, W2, nine to five job. 
Um, so we, we have connections for that. So I've, I've invested in that. I have, you know, I did one of these like ATM investments just to kind of see what it was all about. Um, I've invested in some self storage and some industrial, um, you know, some new construction, uh, of different types. Um, but the vast majority of my portfolio, I would say 90% of the portfolio is in multifamily real estate. So, you know, apartment complexes and and it's diversified throughout the country many different markets this episode is brought to you by pella windows when it comes to building homes at aft almost every project has pella windows and they've been just an incredible partner of ours and locally sammy and adam they are not only amazing business partners behind us but they are super close friends and i speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships right relationships with our customers with our vendors with our suppliers because at the end of the day i'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick, they're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra-contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. Let me ask you this. I mean, because most of it is multifamily, is it pretty common that you're working with existing properties that are being, you know, refurbished, remodeled? Are you uh, building ground up new? And then with that, you know, there's a lot of variation as far as if you're, um, leasing those yourself? Or are you outsourcing that to like a third party who's doing the leasing, you know, and then do you hold on them, hold on to these properties for a certain amount of time? You sell them to national REIT. You know, I, I know I'm asking you a few questions here, but there's a lot of different, you know, variations with multifamily. Yeah, there is. And there's a lot, there's uh, probably an infinite um, ways that these deals can be put together. Um, you know, one of the things that is most important, um, yeah, I have a, the free download on my website, not another free thing on the website where that talks about like how to look at these deals and, and how I approach them. And there's there's really three things. There's the the, the person who's running the deal, which, which is called the sponsor, or the general partner. Um, then there's the deal and then there's the market itself, right? And so I think the most important thing to look at is is who is that person, right? And and who's running the deal, the sponsor or the general partner. Um and 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 focus on that. Um and so for me, if it's somebody that I trust that I know has a good track record, especially if I've invested with them personally before, I'll go with them. And, and, and so the, they may be doing something that's a little bit different, but if I have the trust in them, uh, th that allows me to do that. Most of the stuff that I do is multifamily. Most of the stuff that I do are value add opportunities where we're going in. Uh, and this is, this is both the stuff that I, that I actively manage and that I invest in where we're buying properties that are, 
cash flowing already um but we can you know they're stabilized properties meaning they're they're at least 90 percent occupied um and we're going in there and um, making improvements to the property usually those, those rents are, are well below market and we're able to raise the rents to the middle of the market make it a better place to live make it much a much nicer place for residents our residents always end up loving us because we do so many wonderful things at the property for them and bring them in and make a really wonderful community and um and in doing that we also make a nice profit too you know so that's that's it's definitely a business and it's not it's not a charity but we do that by treating our residents extremely well um and uh, that's the majority of, of what we're doing. Although I've gotten involved in a lot, uh, a lot recently over the past couple of years of new development of new construction deals. You gotta be really careful. They're very risky, but, uh, the rewards can be there. And if it's with the right person, the right operator, I think those can do very well also. So, you know, the bread and butter, you know, 90% of, well, so. 75% of my portfolio maybe is, is the, that multifamily value add. Um, and, and will continue to be right. And I, I consider those sort of like, you know, base hits, but if I can do a new construction, I'm looking for like a, you know, a stand up double, you know, <laughs> that's great. You know? And then if I, if I'm doing a Broadway show, then I'm looking for a grand slam. Right. And so, so that's rare and riskier. You know, you see those guys up at bat. I'm not a huge sports guy, but it's just a good analogy. If you see those guys up at bat, they're, they're swinging for the fences and a lot of times they strike out, you know, but when they hit and they, they knock it out of the park, you know, and you know, and we've, we've had, a, we've had a one grand slam investment on the Broadway side of things. That just was incredible but that's definitely not the norm well it's interesting to bring that up because the application you know i've been involved in a lot of commercial real estate transactions and you know some some venture you know opportunities we've had but it's kind of a similar mindset um to break that down for those listening matters what you're saying is is that when you're going into a new build what even a commercial property let's say you're building a shopping mall or a shopping center yep. there's a lot of costs you're fighting time right time's a big thing cost of materials, labor, times everything in commercial because you have to get operators in there. You have to get businesses in there. Same thing for you. You have to get tenants in there. You know, you have to get a leasing agent with multifamily. So the leasing agent, they're going to be bonus on how quick they can lease it. And so you're kind of fighting all these different elements. Whereas if you can find um, that value property. So for example, you find a shopping center that's maybe 60% occupied. Maybe it's missing the anchor tenant. Same thing. Well, the building's there. It's built. You may have to come in and put, you know, for easy math, maybe a couple million dollar facelift on the property, but you can do that, get an anchor tenant, get some A plus tenants in there. Now your cap rate changes a hundred percent lease and it puts you in a very good fiscal position. Very similar to you where multifamily, as you mentioned, you can come in, you know, 80, 90% occupied, but let's, you know, but the, the occupants are paying maybe under market value. So let's get this to an A plus living quarter, you know, design. And then now we can up the rents, we can get the right, um, cash flow in there. And then the upside so much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a lot of the stuff that we're doing is not, it's not even a class, right? It's like B class properties, C class, like blue collar, um, type, type of, uh, of investments. Yeah. And then uh, what about proximity, you know, nationally, how does that look for you? You're working in, um, New York. I mean, how have you built that 
um, portfolio across, you know, nationally. Lots of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do a good amount of travel. I've built up uh, quite an extensive network over time. You know, most of the properties that I have, um, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I don't have a single thing besides um, uh, a property, which is our primary residence. Uh, I don't own any property in, in the state of New York. And I have very, very little just in the whole Northeast, actually. So most of the properties are located in the Sun Belt. Um, and, and a lot of the deals that I've done have been uh, where I've you know, been the general partner on have been located in Texas, Kansas, and Missouri. Um, that that's sort of where we've been able to find deals that pencil. Look, I'd love to find something. I'm in Brooklyn. I would love to find something in Brooklyn that I could buy that would cash flow. That would be a good investment um, because I wouldn't have to hop on a flight, but uh, you know, I have to invest where the numbers make sense. And that, that tends to be in the Sun Belt. And I, you know, I have some good partners that I've done deal after deal after deal with that are located in those locations. So that allows us to have a local presence that's there essentially 24 seven if needed. And then I'm going and visiting the properties on a very frequent basis. And I'm on zoom calls, just like, uh, like we're on a video conference uh, right now. Um, so where I'm able to communicate, uh, with our property management company and review KPIs. And we do that on a weekly basis. So I am a very active asset manager. I know exactly what's going on at any of the properties at any given time. So walk through, and maybe not getting too specific, but KPI, which are key performance indicators, which, you know, just as you relate that to a business, I mean, all of us should have KPIs internally. How are we tracking KPIs? For, for me, I'm a contractor, right? So as a general contractor, KPIs, performance indicators of, you know, my field team, my office team, accounting, where we have financially, we have all these different metrics that we're tracking. It's no different than you as an investor, right? You have KPIs. What are certain things you're looking for? as you're following up on the investments in the portfolio that's out there. Sure. And just a little genesis on this, you know, I'm a PMI certified project management professional, which means I'm good at managing people, budgets and timelines. And so when I was in the digital marketing world, you know, when I started working at Showtime and then went on from there to work at a bunch of agencies, that's what I did. I, I managed projects. I was a project manager and I, and I worked my way up through the, you know, corporate ladder, if you will, to where I was managing, you know, departments of project managers. And so it's interesting now as an asset manager, I manage the property managers. And so I do very much the same things that I used to do with, with all the directors and, and, and senior uh, project managers underneath me, um, where, where we meet on a weekly basis. And I have a spreadsheet that I go through that has all of these KPIs is listed out and so some of those are you want to look at the occupancy on the property what's our current occupancy on the property but not just our occupancy what is our um, you know how how are we looking trending you know what's our 90-day trend look like does it look like you know we're, we're gonna be going down in occupancy are we going up in occupancy uh, we track um, we track that very heavily we track our renewals um, which affects that that um, uh, occupancy on 30 and 60 and 90 days out. We track our notice to vacates. We track, we, we track, and this is because I worked in advertising so much. We're tracking all the leads and where they're coming from, right? Where's our traffic coming from? Internet, walk-in, drive-by, you know, which internet, okay, well, that's a big, you know, what, 
what website, you know, all those different things, paid advertising, just, just a Google search, whatever. And then tracking it from, from actual leads to, to applications submitted and then to like applications that have been approved and signed. Uh, so, so, you know, there's, there's a lot that's, that's, that's tracked when it, on that there, we're tracking, uh, delinquencies. So, you know, people who haven't paid and sort of what, why haven't they paid and where are they? Are they paying on us next week? Do they have some rental assistance coming in or do we need to take them to court? You know, that, that whole thing. And so we, we track all of that. Um, and then we track, uh, how we're doing on our units. How many units have we made ready this, this, you know, out of the people who left, how many, how many, what, are, how many vacants do we have? How many of those vacants are ready to be leased? How many have we made ready? You know, how many are in the process of being made ready? How many of them have been upgraded? You know, do we have, uh, how many work orders do we have at the property? How many work orders that we have that are over 72 hours? Cause I don't want any work order to be more than 72 hours old. Cause then that means we're not providing good service to our, to our residents. Right. Um, sometimes they do go over 72 hours cause there's some random weird part that they need that just nobody has in town. So we've ordered the part and the parts on its way. But in most cases we really want to fix any trouble tickets within 72 hours. Um, you know, th those types of things is what we're tracking uh, on a weekly basis. Well, it's impressive. I mean, I was just writing down some of your KPIs, you know, from, you know, budgets, traffic leaks, renewals, you know, 90 day trends, occupancy, and essentially every business should have KPIs, right? That they're evaluating as an investor. I mean, this is a key um, asset to you, right? That you have, Matt, that you can go through and make sure that, hey, we're tracking. Maybe if, if we're not getting a ton of traffic through this Google search, through this social media channel, we should try this, you know, so it really helps you also advertising, which is your background as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, we set goals for every single one of these KPIs. So we know if we're, if we're hitting our goals or not. And, and if we're not, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about that and figure out how we get there. So let me ask you, and, and you mentioned this early on, is that, you know, you had an acting background. You know, you've invested in the performing arts and in theater. How does that invest? I mean, this is a whole new world. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of real estate professionals such as yourself, but never anyone that had experience in the theater aspect. So how did that opportunity come up and, you know, how does that differ from your normal day-to-day -day real estate transactions? Yeah. You know, there's not too many Tony award winning, uh, real estate investors out there. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's a, it's a cool thing. It, you know, it's something that I really care about and I'm passionate about the arts. And so to be able to, to be involved even in a, in a somewhat smaller, uh, way, um, is great. I, I had always dreamed of winning a Tony award as a, as an actor for best actor, but Hey, to get it as a, as a, as a co-producer, I'm, 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 I'm thrilled with that. The, the thing that's really interesting is when I first started to hear about syndication, real estate syndication, um, I was very intrigued and wanted to learn more. And I went to a weekend, um, seminar, uh, about it, uh, you know, conference, uh, an in-person seminar event. And, um, I went in there saying, I don't, I don't know what syndication is. And, and about an hour or two after I was in there, I was like, Oh my gosh, I already know what syndication is because we had been doing that for, for the Broadway investment stuff we had been doing. We had been investing in syndications. I just didn't know that's what they were called. Like it was a 506 C 
Reg D, you know, SEC offering. I and I didn't know what that meant. I just remembered the 506C thing, and then I'm sitting there learning about syndication, and they're like 506C, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's the thing we do for the Broadway stuff. So interestingly, most Broadway shows, not not all of them, because there's certain ones that are, you know, like for instance, Disney, they they produce their own shows. They don't have investors in them, right? But uh, at least not individual investors. Um, I don't think they have any at all, but I don't really know their businesses that intimately. But most Broadway shows will have a bunch of investors behind the 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 show. They have to, you know, put all the money together. Unlike real estate, where you can get seventy five percent of the capital needed to do your deal from a bank, that's not happening in a Broadway show, right? So the entire show has to be funded, and we're talking anywhere nowadays from 10 to 25 million dollars for a broadway show because they have to build the set and the costumes and the lighting and the the cast and the you know unions and the bonds and the you know there's so much that goes in it is a lot that's involved and um so you have to raise you know 10 to 25 million dollars to do that unless you happen to be independently wealthy and have that kind of capital that you can contribute on your own so usually there will be an, a producer and um, then there will be investors who will invest in it. And they, it's a 506C syndication. So it's accredited investor. Now they can do it in different ways. I'm just talking about most of the ones that I'm aware of um, are set up as 506C uh, syndication. So you have to be an accredited investor. And, um, you know, look, it, Whenever we've been involved in a show where, where we're taking people's capital, and we have shows that we have under development and things like that, you know, we're, we're very clear with people with the risks involved. It's extremely risky business. 80% of Broadway shows fail to recoup the initial investment, so people lose money on them. So you have to be very careful with these deals, but if you like them and you're passionate about it and you invest in these and you, you happen to be fortunate and you invest in a show like a Hamilton um, then your returns are, they're asymmetrical, right? And so you can do incredibly, incredibly well, but that's the very, very, very few. It's, it's high risk, high reward type of thing. I always tell people, look, if you're interested in investing in, in Broadway shows and stuff, I, I recommend that you just put in, at least in your head, that you're going to invest in like a four or five of them. Don't, don't just do one because you might do one and it's a flop, but if you do four or five, you... If you're doing, if you if you're vetting them well and you're lucky, um, you have a better shot of having something that is a success. Um, but it's it's super risky. But being that I'm involved in it for such a long time, and my wife and you know most of our friends are in the business, and and we're friends with you know this producer and that producer because there's not that many producers, and just you know having been in the business for so long, we we. These are people we hang out with socially. We go to their weddings or like, you know, go out for dinner with them or things like that. We we get we know about a lot of different things and we get approached very often to get involved in shows and the vast majority of the time we're we're no. Right? We're no thank you. Um, but once in a while when it's the right thing and it's something that we feel passionate about, um, we'll get involved. So that's the reason for the cost is I've never thought about it this way only because many of us have been to Broadway or we've seen musicals. And so we understand you have the ticket revenue, you know, you, you sponsors and, you know, advertisers at the event, but it's all the money leading up to it, right? Like you have to produce these shows, you know, you have to cast them, there's training, you know, building sets. So there's a huge capital the development, investment. 
right. thing that a lot of people don't realize is the development of that show. So we have a show right now that we've been developing, my wife and I, for uh, a, a little over a little over a year now. Um, friends of ours who are writers um, have this show that we love. And so we've spent a lot of money on it, doing workshops, recording demos, uh, and, and, and you know, who knows what we'll have. We're at this point now where it's like, okay, we're hoping to go to a, a regional theater and, and have it, you know, have a little bit more of a life and maybe it will make it to Broadway someday. That's the goal, right? And that's what we're working towards, but it could end right now. Like this could be it. We could be done. So, um, there, this is something that will take years, right? Uh, these shows take years before they go to Broadway, and there's usually a large outlay of, of capital and time and effort before these things ever see the, the great white way. Yeah, but let me upside, and maybe Hamilton's a good example because Hamilton explodes, right? And it's, you know, everyone's going to see it in London, and they travel, you know, and they're in California and Arizona, I mean, all over. So when with a show like Hamilton, are there like royalties that go to the original investment? Is it a percentage? Is that how that works down the line? Yeah, that's right. So when you invest, and again, we're talking in generalities here because things right. can be set up differently. For sure. But in the vast majority of cases, the way the shows are set up, um, if you're in the originating production, which is usually the Broadway production, you get um, certain rights, subsidiary rights, um, and, and things of that nature. So what would happen is... Um, uh, in the Hamilton example, we we were we were fortunate enough to invest a teeny teeny little bit into the Hamilton Broadway. Production. Way to go! That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. So, so teeny tiny little bit. So we 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 did that investment, and there's now been subsequent productions. You mentioned UK. It is. It's in the UK. It's in Australia. And at one point, there was I believe three companies in Broadway uh, beyond Broadway. Maybe four, four. Uh, four and um, it's dwindled down a little bit in the U.S. Because, but you know, in the first few years, it was there was a bunch of different companies. So each one of those companies, each of these um, other productions, of the show do pay a royalty into the originating company. Beyond that, also, like when a high school is going to do Hamilton ten years right. from now, they'll pay a small amount in, you know, or a regional theater or whatever. But beyond that. Um, in, like I said, in the vast majority of these things, if, if you invest in the originating company, you get the right of first refusal to invest in those subsequent productions. So like the teeny tiny bit we did in, you know, Broadway, which is like, I don't know, 0.0001% or whatever. Um, we got to invest that again, 0.001% of the London production and of the Australian production and of the U S tours. So at one point we had like seven, show seven productions that we had to put more money into them but the Broadway production was profitable so we were just reinvesting our profits so we had like seven different productions of the show that we were invested in if you look at it from that perspective and you look at the fact that we didn't outlay any additional capital because the capital we were using to invest in the other shows was profits from the first one the returns look like like comical they're they're huge right returns like way more than you'd ever get any real estate deal ever but but again like super like once in a lifetime kind of situation right and and by no means a norm that people should 
should think about. But sometimes you have a Wicked. Sometimes you have a Phantom of the Opera, which just closed, I think, last week or they closed this week, but was running on Broadway for, I don't know, I think around 35 years. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, there, there are those that come around, but they're very, very, very seldom. Yeah, I think Hamilton's very, you know, it's, it's it's more rare for sure than what's what's popular. You mentioned accredited investors, so speak to that. That, you know, one thing that people have to understand if they want to get invest in certain opportunities, as they're putting together a pool of investors, you have to have accreditation. So walk through what that is or means. I know it can differ depending on size of investment or qualifications. Yeah. Um... A vast majority of the syndications that are done are set up one of two ways, a 506B or a 506C. Now, a 506C requires that the investor who's investing be accredited, and I'll explain what that is in a second. But a 506B does not require everybody to be accredited. You can actually have up to 35 sophisticated investors be involved in that. And so that opens the door uh, for people. I love doing 506Bs when I can because it, I, I feel like it allow, it's a little bit more equitable and allows more people in who don't meet the stringent requirements for 506C. When you're doing the 506C, you also like have to the, the investor has to prove it. Uh, we actually, most people will use a third party. So we use a third party to actually review the investor's documents and they, or they can get an affidavit signed by their attorney or their CPA certifying that they've reviewed their documents, the tax returns and such to make sure they meet the requirements. And the requirements are that you um, have earned $200,000 or more um, per year for the past two years with the reasonable expectation that that would be continuing or not and but or or you and your spouse um have uh earned um three hundred thousand dollars or more for the past two years with the reasonable expectation that would continue in the future or that you have a net worth of uh, $1 million, but that cannot include your primary residence. Now, I have friends in New York who are, I would consider, you know, pretty well-off people who are not accredited investors because, like, their net worth is maybe worth 900 k um, because they have a home that's worth, like, $2 million because, yeah. like, that's, like, kind of cheap for New York City, actually, you know, or a million bucks or whatever. They have, you know a lot of their net worth tied up in their primary residence and they can't include that, um, which is, which is not fair, <laughs> but, but that's, those are the rules, right? So those are the rules. There's also some rules that came out about a year ago where if you have, and, and actually I'm not too clear on exactly what this stuff is. It's very easy to find online. I have a link to it on my website actually, but it's like, if you have a series six, like if you have certain financial, um, designations uh, the the the, the um, SEC is now considering that to be accredited as well, and they they are actually, from what I understand, in review of what the accredited factors are, and that those may be changing. Some people say that that may be the the, the million dollar net worth may be going up because these were, I believe, created in 1980 something. So um, they. Uh, 
you know, in the 80s, a million dollars, you could do a lot more with a million dollars in the 80s than you can now. So there's, there's you know, rumor, speculation that that number might go north, might go up to 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, who knows? Um, there's no timeline on when we would know. It's just whenever the SEC um, puts out new guidance on that, we'll have to follow that. Well, what's interesting, I mean, the reality behind this, it's not just a barrier to entry. It's really protection, right? Because what's happening is, is in a perfect world, yes, um, we would all make returns on our investments. But as you mentioned, you know, just with the theatrical investments you've done, not everything's a winner. Not every real estate transaction is a winner. And so you're trying to protect people that may not have the income they're putting it in that they could lose it. And so essentially it's, you know, it's just a barrier to entry to make sure that uh, it's not going to affect your total livelihood. Agreed. The SEC was created coming out of the Great Depression, right? And it was created as a uh, an agency to to basically uh, help protect the consumer, and that's what they're doing. And I think it's great. And and the thought behind this is like, well, listen, if not including your home, you know, you got a million bucks in around, um, you know, you can you can stand to lose some of that. And it's not going to put you in a place where you're homeless or destitute, right? And and that's what they're trying to do. You're right. They're trying to protect the consumer and make sure the consumer um, is not going to be putting themselves in a bad position. Well, I know I know we're short on time, and Matt, you've been so generous and super informed. I mean, just so much knowledge. Can't thank you enough. And so, how uh, for those listening, um, you know, the book. How can they get your book? You know, the backstage got real estate. I know you're a coach. You know, you really mentor others, and then. Uh, where, where can listeners find you? Best thing to do is just to go to my website. It's pacheni.com and I'll spell that for people and I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes, but it's P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. There's tons of free content on there, free downloads, free articles. You can buy the book on there too if you'd like uh, and, uh, find out more about me and, and, and the type of, of work that I do, but it's just, I think it's a good resource. I've, I've worked really hard to, you know, I have a newsletter that I send out every month and I, plus I write an article for every month for that. That's real estate education. And so, and, and the archives are on there. So it's just, it's a good resource. I think for people who are interested in, in real estate, learning more about real estate. Well, Matt, phenomenal information, um, your wealth of knowledge, and even from the theater side that we diverted to. So appreciate <laughs> making time for me today. Thank you. Hey, Brad, thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favor to ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes, please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address guests that we should have on. And even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.